Amen. Well, let's stand together and um, if you have your Bibles in your hand, hold them up. Hold up your Bible if you've got it. If you don't have it, go home. I'm kidding. Stay right there. I'll tell you, the, the children are about to beat us because he's got over 50% of the children bringing their Bibles on Wednesday nights and they're learning to quote them. Within three seconds, he'll, Pastor Ray will say a verse and they'll turn to it and find it at the count of three. Quick draw. They're quick on the draw. And so they're about to put us to shame. So you better come with your Bible or a child shall lead them. Amen? All right, we're going to pray together. And how many of you are getting anything out of Romans? Isn't it good? You, if you don't get anything out of Romans, you're not saved. You need to get saved. Uh, tonight we're going to talk about where the Jew stands. That may sound a little bit like, well, how does that matter to me? Well, you're going to see that it really does. Um, so let's, let's uh, pray together. Father, we just thank you for the Word of God. Thank you for the book of Romans. Thank you, Lord, for this incredible God-inspired book that so explains our faith to us. And we pray that you will open our understanding, open the eyes of our understanding, enlighten us, and build us up in the faith that is in Jesus Christ. Strengthen our faith tonight, Lord, and strengthen our walk with you, and strengthen our spirit man, our inner man, with the mighty Word of God. Now, will you breathe a prayer, church, and just say, Lord, speak to me tonight. I receive your Word in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. You can be seated. And of course, we're doing a chapter a week. And so next week, if you want to read ahead, I would encourage you to do it. Read chapter four and uh, just kind of go over it, mark some things up. Remember, I've shared with you, never read the Bible without a pen or a pencil because you may forget, but paper never forgets. And you make your notes and uh, let your Bible know that you were there reading it. Amen. I need a better amen from y'all tonight. You're, you're subdued tonight. Are y'all okay tonight? Okay. All right. Now, let's look at where, uh, what this means about where does the Jew stand. In chapter 2, we saw God's indictment on the hypocrite. That person, and what is the hypocrite? He condemns in others what he himself practices. That's a hypocrite. You point the finger at somebody else, and you've got four of them pointing back at you because you're doing what you're condemning them for. So he deals with the hypocrite. And of course, Jesus uh, had his most scathing words for the hypocrites. Now, we also saw Paul making the case that the Jew, or anybody for that matter, would not be saved by being outwardly religious. This is huge with Paul because he was raised on outward uh, religious rites and ritual, and taught that if you did it just right, then you would be saved. And so when he got delivered from that, I mean, he got delivered 110%. So nothing made him angrier than this religious ritual, and that's what will get you saved, and it, part of it is, is on you, and it's not all on him. Uh, he says, no, 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 it's all on God. Now, uh, said that the Jew would not be saved by being outwardly religious as in the practice of circumcision. No, we must be changed within by a circumcision of the heart. Without inner transformation, the Jew and the Gentile both are what, everyone? They're lost. And you can't get away from that, no matter what our culture says. God says, if you don't come to Christ, Jew or Gentile, 
you're lost. That's what it says. Now, in chapter 3, Paul defends his indictment of Jewish lostness. He's talking to his own countrymen now, the Jew. And you find him in chapter 3 responding to an imaginary foe, an imaginary debater. And uh, he says, you, you may say, he'll use phraseologies like that, you may say, but I say to you. He's not talking to any one person. He's anticipating arguments from the Jewish community. Now, no doubt, he had encountered some of these very arguments from Jews during his ministry, but the person in chapter 3 is an imaginary made-up foe, so he can answer some of the questions that have always been coming at him. Now, in verses 1 through 2, he deals with the question, what advantage has the Jew? Now, before we get into chapter 3, let me tell you that uh, chapter 3, uh, if you take the first three chapters of Romans and you stop at verse 20 in chapter 3, here's what you come away with. Woe is me. We are undone. There is no hope. It's all helpless. Eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow you die and go straight to hell. The first three chapters of Romans are like a doctor looking at you with an x-ray in his hand. I get this, and he's holding it up to that light, and he's going, "Uh uh-oh. And you say, what do you mean, "Uh uh-oh? You are finished. That's the first three chapters of Romans. And if you didn't go on into Romans 3, verse 21, and on from there... It really is depressing to read the first three chapters. And tonight, we're going to show you again, or the Word's going to show us again, how desperately lost and undone we really are. So we're about to get the worst of the x-ray tonight. And I get to be the doctor. And I'm telling you. and, and, And Paul tells all of humanity, you're undone. It's hopeless. It's helpless. You're in sin. You're going to hell. You're lost. But he doesn't leave us there. So just keep that in mind as we now delve into some of the bleakest descriptions of the human condition in the entire Word of God. So everybody say with me, amen. I'm ready. Because after verse 20, he says, but there is an answer. And by then you're going, hallelujah. Glory to God. All right, now let's Let's look at it now. What advantage then, he says, is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, they have been entrusted with the very words of God. The Bible in your hand has come from Jewish people, except for Luke and Acts. Dr. Luke was Gentile, and he uh, wrote Acts as well, or penned Acts under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But aside from that, we owe the entire Word of God to the Jewish people. Every book was penned by a Jew. That's why don't curse the Jews. Don't curse Israel. I could preach on that alone. I was very tempted to talk about the Middle Eastern issue tonight. But I'm going to stick with what I was going with because I'm going to maybe spend a lot of time on that later. But right now, the entire world is being deceived into anti-Semitism. And if you want to remain under a blessing, pray for Jerusalem. 
Pray for the Jewish people. And don't allow... Amen. And don't allow the, the totally brainwashed media and governments of the world to change your mind about God's chosen people. Get your theology from the Word, not from the culture. All right? Now, so he says, first of all, they've been entrusted with the very words of God. The whole Bible from the Jewish people. Remember in chapter 2, Paul had informed them that being circumcised would have nothing to do with saving them. That was just a ritual, a, a religious rite. It was the seal of the Abrahamic covenant, but it had nothing to do with saving them. He said, quote, circumcision has value if you observe the law. But if you break the law, and we've all broken it, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. He's saying it all comes down to are you a sinner or are you not? And Paul's indictment on the whole human race is, yes, all of you are. Now he goes on. A man is not a Jew if he's only one outwardly. Nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, not by the written code. Now let's just make it personal to you and I because we're all in here Gentiles. You're not a Christian because you go to church. You're not a Christian because you've got a Bible on your table. You're not a Christian because you were baptized when you were a little baby. You are only a Christian if you are a Christian inwardly. If you have been transformed by the touch of the Spirit of God on your life. That's what he's saying. He's saying you can go to church all your life long and die and go to hell. A church doesn't make you a Christian any more than a, gar than a garage makes a piece of steel a car. That's what he's saying. It's all what has happened to you on the inside. Have you been transformed by the Spirit of God on the inside? And that's true for Jew or Gentile. Now, this statement, no doubt, shocked the Jews. And it begged the question, well, well then, what advantage is there in being a Jew? If all of this religious ritual isn't doing us any good, then why be a Jew? What's the point? Paul answered, much in every way. To begin with, Jews had been entrusted with the very words of God. And that was, in, in Paul's day, a reference to the entire Old Testament because the New Testament wasn't penned yet. And looking back uh, again to chapter 2, Paul had spoken of those hardened and unrepentant Jews who were storing up wrath for themselves. He had described those who were proclaiming the law fervently to the Gentiles, but were practicing it in a shoddy manner as far as their personal testimony went. Clearly, the Jews in Paul's crosshairs were being unfaithful toward the covenant that God had made with them. So the question that Paul is now tackling in Romans 3 is this one. What if some did not have faith? Will their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? In other words, these Jews that were preaching to everybody else but not living it for themselves, did they nullify God's covenant? Did they ruin the legitimacy of God's promises to the Jewish people? 
Not at all, Paul says. Let God be true. And great statement here. Let God be true and every man a liar. As it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. When God speaks, it's right. And when he judges, he prevails. Now the Jews wanted to know if the unfaithfulness of some Jews nullified or canceled out the faithfulness of God. Paul says, no way. God will not uh, fail in his promises towards you because guess what? Every person will answer for their own sin. God is true to his word and to his covenant. He will not judge me for somebody else's sins, thank God. Okay? Paul had said in chapter 2, to those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he'll give eternal life. And the person living this way is showing that they're saved. If you're saved, you will by persistence uh, continue to do good and you will seek for glory and honor and immortality if you're saved. This is the fingerprint of somebody saved. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, guarantee you, church, there's going to be wrath and there's going to be anger from God. For God does not, say it with me, God does not show favoritism. He doesn't care what your pedigree is, how much money you made, how educated you were, what color your skin is, what part of the country you came from. When we stand before the judgment of God or at the foot of the cross, there is no Jew nor Gentile, male nor female, nobody better than anyone else. We are all equal and we will all answer for whether we put faith in Christ and we'll answer for that by being forgiven or we will answer for the way that we live and there will be wrath and there will be anger. Now next, the imaginary, uh, imaginary debater begins questioning God's justice. And here's what he says. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I'm using a human argument. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Now follow his train of thinking here. Paul's imaginary foe is literally arguing that his wickedness actually serves God by providing a contrasting background for God's righteousness. He's kind of saying to God, you need me to sin. Because if I sin, I'm, I'm making your righteousness stand out better. So, so God bless my sin. You say, well, how can anybody think that way? Oh, people can think any, any which way. I mean, it's amazing what people can think. So here they were. They were saying, hey, our sinful lifestyle is helping the grace of God. It's helping God out. Sin away. In other words, if I weren't sinning, how could God's righteousness stand out? This, of course, is twisted thinking. Paul says, if this were true, God could not judge the world, for one could say that the whole world was serving God by sinning. Yeah, I need you to sin so my righteousness can stand out. Well, then how can he judge that person if he's telling them, go on and sin so my righteousness can stand out? 
Bottom line is, God never puts an amen on sin. Never. He's always against it, and it will always hurt you, harm you, rob from you, steal from you, marginalize your potential, and destroy you. So, now the ridiculous argument is taken a step further. He says, uh, this is the imaginary foe, someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases His glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? There you go. Now that's clear thinking. This imaginary foe would have been very at home in our day. Very at home in our day. So there he goes again. In other words, the Jews' unrighteousness actually enhances God's forgiveness, and therefore it is commendable to sin. And he said, well, Pastor Jeff, surely there weren't a bunch of people coming up with that one. Oh, really? Well, you're going to see in a minute that they were not only coming up with it, but they were saying that that's what Paul was preaching. God ought not find fault with the Jew, they were saying, for his sin, because that sin helps magnify the character of God. Okay? Once again, Paul responds with a resounding, say it with me, everybody, God forbid. God is both just and righteous, something woven into the very fabric of His Word. Since that is so, it's obviously a false assumption that man's sin somehow enhances God's righteousness. God doesn't need us to sin to enhance His righteousness. He doesn't need us to sin for His righteousness to stand out. What made all this particularly bad was that Paul's enemies were spreading the rumor that this is what Paul was actually preaching. Sin so that grace may abound. That he encouraged sinning, they were saying, as a means of enhancing God's glory. They were saying, going around rumor-mongering that this was Paul's message. Sin so that God's grace may abound. Go ahead, sin away so that his grace may abound. Look what he says in verse 8, quote, he says, As we are being slanderously reported as saying, and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result. And what does he say about these people who are spreading that rumor? Their condemnation is deserved. They're going to catch it from God. Because when you go and you tell people, hey, go ahead and sin, because as you sin, God's righteousness is better manifested in the world and they go and they die in their sin, their blood's going to be on your hands. No, the message of the church is repent from your sin. Turn from your sin. Walk away from your sin. Let God forgive your sin. Never indulge yourself in sin. Amen? So Paul has concluded his case against the Jew. He said, you, you, my brethren, you Jewish folks, you've lost your mind. This is not the message of God. God pays no attention to the Jewish claim to be exempt from judgment on the grounds that he is a Jew. There is no one who will be exempt from judgment if they don't get their sin covered by the blood. Church, we've got to, listen, if we don't return to that message and preach that message boldly to this culture, then this culture's blood will be on our hands. God did not tell us to be uh, 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 multicultural or multi. Uh, messaged. He did not tell us to, that any old way would get you there. 
He did not tell us that uh, any God will do. He didn't tell us that the only thing that matters is your good intentions. He told us there is no other name given among men whereby we must, 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 must be saved than Jesus. So, let's go on. Religion in itself, and there wasn't anybody more religious than the Jews, cannot exempt anyone from the judgment of God. No matter how religious you are, how many times a week you go to church, how many times you take communion, how many times you you do some religious charity, it does not matter. That will not justify you in the eyes of God. Can I have a better amen than that? Let's get it now, church. The only way that we are justified in the eyes of God is if we go to the foot of the cross and allow the blood to cover our sin uh, because he took out his wrath on Jesus Christ and made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And apart from that, there is no salvation. There is no justification. Now, Jew and Gentile, religious and irreligious alike, all stand before God, exposed to His wrath on the ground that they are sinners. Now let's look at the guilt of all humanity. Here comes the x-ray. Are you all ready? Here comes the bad news from Doc. All right, here it is. Next, Paul is going to place all of mankind under the indictment of guilt before God. He'll do it in three phases, and here they are. The Catholicity of sin. And he said, what is that? Catholic means universal. In around the third or fourth century, as the church was growing and the Catholic church emerged, the reason they called it Catholic, it simply meant universal church. So that's all that Catholic means. So when you say Catholicity, you mean the universalness or the all-encompassing nature of sin. So he's going he's to tell us that sin's universal. Okay? Then the criminality of sin. We're criminals. In that, we have transgressed the law. And then finally, the culpability of sin. We're all involved in it. We all did it. So the Catholicity, the criminality, and the culpability of sin, he's going to deal with all three of these and let us know there's no escape unless you take the escape that God gives. First, the Catholicity or the universal nature of sin. Now, notice the constant repetition of the words none and no, not one in Paul's words. Not a single member of Adam's race is exempted. There is none righteous, no, not one. The indictment is sweeping, complete, all-encompassing. And when you look at it, there's a racial aspect to Paul's indictment. Now look at what he does. He says, what shall we conclude then? Verse 9, are we any better? Talking about the Jew? Not at all. We've already made the charge, says Paul, that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. So there's no racial exceptions. Everyone is under sin. You know what the problem with our world is right now? It's not drugs, not ultimately uh, it, it's, not, uh, it's not immorality, ultimately. It's not the breakdown of the family, ultimately. We have a massive 
deep, profound, grieving sin problem. It's sin. Is the re- sin is the root problem that is rocking and destroying and ruining the world as we watch it day by day. It's a sin problem. There's only one answer for it. Over yonder, on that hill, that cross. That's it. Now he says, all men, Jew and Gentile, Oriental, Eastern, and Occidental, Western, red and yellow, black or white, all are on the same footing at the judgment. All are under sin. And there's a religious aspect to what he says about this universality of sin. As it is written, he says, there is no one righteous. Read this with me, everybody. There is no one righteous. How many? Not even one. There is, read it now, no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is, read it now, no one who does good, not even one. They may think they're doing good, but they're not. In God's eyes, there's not one, not even one, not one. Paul is stating that in their relationship to God, men are unrighteous. Man is incapable by nature of doing that which is right in the sight of God. You don't have to teach your children to lie. You have to teach your children not to lie. You don't have to teach little Billy to steal. You've got to teach him not to steal. You don't have to teach little Susie to sass you. You've got to teach little Susie not to sass you. Because rebellion is inbred. It is in our DNA spiritually. We're fallen. The whole human race is fallen. And until you see them through that vantage point, until you see humanity through that lens, they don't make any sense. But once you see humanity as fallen and the way the Bible describes them, it all makes sense. The war, the murder, the rape, the drug abuse, everything that's always going on, we're fallen. Many people think that their behavior is right, and it may be according to human standards, but God does not judge men by human standards. He tries them by his own standards of absolute perfection, and no one, not even one, lives up to it. In light of those standards, what everyone? There is none righteous, not even one. Paul points out that man is unreasonable in his relationship with God. There is no one who understands. Writing to the Corinthians, he says in essence the same thing. Now catch this. I found this verse amazing, what I'm about to read to you. He says, where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age or any age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Now listen, if you ever study history and you ever study philosophy in history, thinkers in history, you can go all the way back to the Greeks, the Egyptians. Uh, well, we tend to, to loud the, the, the Greeks and Plato, Aristotle, and Socrates and the whole, the whole influence of the Greek culture that was very philosophical, very uh, cerebral and 
uh, constantly delving into what is life all about and how can we make sense out of life and why are we here and all the big questions. He says, all of that thinking, and you can find, you could fill this room with the books of people who have delved into the reason for life, why we're here, all the big philosophical questions. You could fill this room with the books. They, they strained, they thought, they searched. And in all their searching and all their thinking, it says God made a fool of their wisdom. What does he say about it? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom, its own philosophical wisdom, did not know him. All that thinking, all that writing, all that pondering for centuries and centuries and centuries of time, yet they never knew God. Well, if my philosophy doesn't lead me to God and to life with him and communion with him, then it's worthless. It's just worthless. You wasted, I mean, I'm sorry, but ultimately you wasted your life. So what did God do? He looked down at all the thinking, all, you know, Paul wrote this in, you know, to the Romans and, and the Greek culture had just pretty much been absorbed into Rome. And so they were influenced by Roman thinking and heavy Greek thinking. He knew all about this. He said, listen, God looked at this and what did he do? He said it was, it pleased him through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. He said, these people spend their whole life trying to figure it all out, and then you hear a gospel message, and you are translated from darkness to light. And then what does he say? Christ has become unto us the wisdom of God. You want to really be wise? You want to be a good philosopher? You want the best philosophy you could ever lay hold of? Jesus Christ was the greatest philosopher to ever walk the earth. Period period. So I just find that a mind blower. In all their thinking, they never found God. Now the man without the Spirit, here's another uh, verse in 1 Corinthians 2, 14. The man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they're spiritually discerned. The real wisdom is in your Bible and it comes by way of the Holy Spirit to your heart. And unless you're saved, you can't even begin to understand it. Because you've not been born again. Your mind is carnal, sold, and slave, enslaved under sin. You can't understand it. So the real wisdom is right in front of you in the person of Christ. Now, think about it. God clearly gave to man an ingenious mind. We have sent men to the moon. We've learned how to communicate with one another on the other side of the world in mere microseconds and have enjoyed the technological revolution, lifting ourselves out of the dark ages of candles and foot travel and early death by disease and cold. Think about it. He gave man an ingenious mind. But when it comes to the things of God, 
our minds are strangely clouded. Look around you. Just watch the culture. We betray an incredible denseness when it comes to God's truth. Our ingenious minds are warped and twisted when it comes to eternal and spiritual issues. The damage brought on by sin runs deep into the thinking processes of man. I'm never, I never cease to be amazed at how people who are college-educated, relatively bright, can be so completely blind to the truth of Christ. I mean, some of them, four-point GPAs, master degree, doctor's degree, and yet they still believe this all evolved from nothing in time and chance. Come on, that's blindness. Commentator John Phillips writes this, quote, Man's imaginations are often filthy. His memories often betray him. His deductions are often false. And his conclusions are often wrong. Put simply, on the things that matter most, man is blind. It's a fact. Next, Paul shows that men are unresponsive in their relationship to God. There is none that seeks after God. The word for seek there means to seek something with determination. As one would seek for a lost child frantically or a misplaced gold watch. He said there's nobody seeking God that way. Man, says Paul, doesn't do any such thing when it comes to to God. He does not get up and decide to seek God. You know why? Because dead folks don't seek anything. Jesus likened us instead to lost sheep. You know what a sheep is? It's dumb. Everybody say dumb. He likened us to sheep. All right. And, And let me tell you the truth about a sheep. It's not smart. It's swift. Uh, It's not smart, uh, swift, or strong. It's dumb. It has no power or inclination to seek its shepherd once it has strayed. It goes out there and it gets cast, C-A-S-T. A cast sheep lays down to rest, rolls over on its back, can't get back over his all four legs, goes straight up, and he'll die that way if somebody doesn't find him. (laughs) How's that for a description of you and me? If God didn't come find us, what are we all doing? If he didn't come find us, we'd die. Just like that. That's exactly how they die. That's why Jesus said when they lost that one sheep, he left the 99 that were saved and ran with urgency to find the one that was lost. What was he thinking? If I don't get him soon, he's going to get cast. And if he gets cast, he's dead. So he found you and I. What condition were you in when he found you? I know. (laughs) Help me, help me. All right. Someone might say, well, then how do you explain that pagan lands are filled with temples and worshipers? The Bible gives the answer. The things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons, not to God. They're not worshiping the true God. Paul has already told us in chapter 1, the Gentile world has turned its back on God in order to pursue idolatry. Behind this world's false beliefs is the God of this world who is the devil. 
Jesus said that religion apart from regeneration is vain. No man can come to me except the Father draw him. And if you're not born again, you're in vanity and vexation of spirit. Now, he finally says man is unrepentant in his relationship to God. All have turned away. Look at what they've all done. All of us, we've turned away. We have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. We've all turned away to go our own way. What way were you going when, when the Lord found you? You weren't going towards Him. He had to intercept you in life and convict you of sin and point the other direction and say, turn. If He hadn't done that, you would have gone headlong into hell because there's not even one of us going the right direction when He finds us. Not one are going the right direction when He approaches us. Now, this passage rips away all of man's imagined goodness. We've all walked away from God prior to conversion. God sums up our uh, godless uh, lives with the word unprofitable. So in God's eyes, man is unrighteous, unreasonable, unresponsive, and unrepentant. Every one of us. How's that for an x-ray? And then finally, here we go. Can you all take a little bit more? Okay. He says, then there's the criminality of sin. Bible teacher Lewis Schaefer once said, it may be a secret sin on earth, but it's an open scandal in heaven. <clears throat> what does that mean? In other words, what man considers common, ordinary, run-of-the-mill, oh yeah, whatever, God considers it criminal because we're breaking His law. We're all fugitives from justice when we get saved. Until you get saved, you're a fugitive from justice. And some of you right now, driving in a car, I'm telling you, if you don't come to Christ, you're a fugitive from justice. And maybe God's speaking to you right now to give your heart to Him because when you give your heart to Him, all the charges are dropped. But until then, you're a fugitive from justice, sir, ma'am, a fugitive. And you're running, and you'll always run until you stop at the foot of the cross. Man is hopelessly criminal in his sin. Paul shows this first by his words, what he says, and then by his feet, where he goes. Watch this. Look at his speech. Verse 13. Their throats, this is all lost people and some Christians. Did I say that? Some Christians that need to take care of their tongue. But now here's, here's man without God. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. That does not sound, sound kind. That, that's tough words. But that's the words of men right there. Poisonous, viper-like, deceitful, and stinky like a grave. Human speech stinks like a corpse in a grave. It's full of lies and it's venomous like a poisonous snake. Ever been bitten? Anybody ever been bitten by poisonous words? And doesn't it just fill you with pain, take you down, hurt you? Only man can do that. Your dog can't do that to you, thank God. Your cat can't do that to you. 
The only creature that can do that to you is man. Words are so important that Jesus warned every idle word men speak they'll give an account for on the day of judgment. Every single word. Next, there's man's ways. What does it say about his ways? Where his feet go? Their feet are swift to shed blood. Man is by nature murderers. Now, church, hear me on this one. You say, well, not me. I mean, every once in a while somebody kills somebody, but I'm sure not a murderer. Do you know the Bible is so clear that we murder with our tongue? We murder with our words. Now, I'm not here to make you feel bad. This is the x-ray Romans 3 is giving us before he gives us the answer, the solution. But here right now he's showing us uh, uh, men by nature are murderous. We are. Kathy and I, we watch forensic files all the time. And we watch the first 48. And we watch all these crime shows. Because you know what they say to me? They show me the truth of the Word of God. You'll see these up, uh, the, these up and successful people. These, they got money. They've got homes. They've got cars. They've got beautiful or handsome spouses. They've got everything you're supposed to be happy with in this world. And then they turn right around and kill somebody. And then they try to cover up with the best of them. They lie, they deceive, they run, they hide. They'll send somebody else to prison in their place. This person who was this upright individual in society, all of a sudden you see this coming out, and we see it all the time on these shows. And you go, the Word of God is true. Man is murderous by nature. J. Edgar Hoover once observed there's a murder every 40 minutes in the United States, and that's probably way higher now. And he says, ruin and misery mark their ways in the way of peace they have not known. Man's wicked ways, listen to me, church, lead to misery. Why do people? Let's, let's just give some names. Michael Jackson. Let's give some names that we know. Uh, Lindsay Lohan. Let's give some names that are out there in the culture all the time. And we see they got money. They've got fame they've got popularity they've got looks and yet they're so miserable they bury their lives in alcohol and drug abuse and immorality always on the run always on the lamb always trying to numb the pain why because wicked ways lead to misery there's no getting away from it look around you Statistics show that drug abuse and drug addiction cost Americans over $484 billion annually. We live in an addicted culture. If you're not addicted to anything but God, you're the exception and not the rule. Because life without God leads to misery. It leaves a gaping, vacuous hole in the soul that man desperately tries to fill with hopeless counterfeits and counterfeits that don't work. Paul says, in all their searching, the way of peace they have not known. God sent the Prince of Peace over 2,000 years ago, but most reject him. There is no fear of God, says Paul, before their eyes. They don't have a fear of God. In light of the Catholicity or universal nature of sin and the criminality of sin, Paul concludes his indictment of mankind by hammering home man's culpability or personal blame for well, we're not culpable. We are culpable. Okay, we're culpable by our sinful actions. 
Amen? We're culpable. He writes in verses 19 and 20, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Now watch this carefully. Those under the law are the Jews. Those without the law in Paul's day were the Gentiles. They all are under God's judgment. Look what he says in verse 20, and we're closing. Therefore, how many? No one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. Now let me help you with something here tonight as we close about the Ten Commandments and about the law. The law was not given for us to perfectly obey it. You know why? You can't. It was given, the law, when Moses came down with those commandments and threw them down in front of the people, those laws, those commandments were given to magnify our awareness of the sinfulness of our sin. The law was a magnifying glass that pulled the sin up tight in front of our eyes so we could see it. That's why he says in other places, before the law, there was no sin. He didn't want to say man wasn't sinning. He was saying there was no consciousness of what was clearly sin. But with the law came awareness exactly of what sin was. It was given so that we would say, I can't keep it. I'm undone. What will I do? I can't lift this weight. The answer is, when you ask that question, God says, I was waiting for you to ask that question. I was waiting for you to make that statement. Because here's my answer. Everybody say with me, grace. Grace. So look what he says in Galatians 3.24. So the law was given to lead us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. And that's where we're going next week. Can we stand together? <clears throat> Next time, look at that title, Amazing Grace, How Very Sweet the Sound. How many of you could use some grace after that x-ray? <laughs> Amen. Let's thank God for the blood and for the grace of God. Lord, we just thank you right now that there is none righteous, no, not one, but there was one who perfectly obeyed. And we thank you for that one, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross and innocent blood was shed. And that blood is the only thing that can cover our sin. But Lord, cover it, it does. And we thank you for total forgiveness. Can we lift our hands and let's just sing about that blood for a minute. I just feel thankful for the blood as we come through that x-ray and, and say, oh, what are we going to do? It's the blood of Jesus is the answer. Let's sing it now.